Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And as you go down the line, you can see, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful and the pure and the peacemaker and the persecuted. The sermon on the mount has been called the greatest sermon ever preached and the greatest speech ever delivered. Even among the agnostic and the atheist and the unbeliever, when you ask the question, what is the most significant speech ever given, most will turn to Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. It's one continuous sermon. If we were to take the time right at this very moment and we began in chapter 5, we could read through chapter 6 and chapter 7 and it would take us about 20 minutes. The message was delivered on a mountain somewhere in the Galilee right near Capernaum. And that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend many, many weeks in chapters 5 6 and 7. I will make the obligatory departure next week when I will speak about the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the truths of this sermon, when they were preached, went off like bombs exploding. And the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees were quite literally overcome by this message. This is the constitution of the new king, which forever changes the way that humanity will think about themselves and think about God and think about the world. The first great article in the king's constitution is the absence of conceit and the presence of humility before God. The United States Constitution begins with a Bill of Rights. The first ten amendments ensure our rights to freedom of religion and speech, of association, petition and assembly. But the Constitution of Heaven begins not with liberties or even freedoms but attitudes our attitude about ourself in verse 3 our attitude towards sin in verses 4 through 6 our attitude towards the lord in verses 7 through 9 our attitude toward the world in verses 10 through 16 and as citizens of heaven our mandate comes from our king King Jesus, and our King invites us to adopt an attitude of personal humility. We mourn over sin, we experience God's mercy, and then we declare our independence from sin and this world and our dependence upon the Lord. The world praises pride, not humility. The world endorses sin, not personal purity. The world is at war with God. And so guess what? The world will eventually declare war with you. The the, the Lord invites you to embrace the notion that perhaps his enemies are going to be your enemies. And perhaps one of the greatest enemies of our king and his kingdom is conceit. It's personal pride. 
So our Lord's theme throughout this message in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, the, the, the thread that connects the sermon together is this issue of true righteousness. True righteousness pictured by Christ in chapter 5 verses 1 through 48. Because as you look at all of these attitudes, you're going to see your Lord and your King True righteousness practiced by believers in chapter 6 and then in chapter 7 to, to verse 12. And then true righteousness proved by a series of tests. The Lord Jesus will talk about the test of self-denial in chapter 7 verses 13 through 29. Will I walk this narrow way? And then there is going to be the test of fruit bearing which comes from my life in chapter 7. And then there is going to be the test of obedience. Am I saying what I'm doing and does what I do reflect what I say? And since the theme is true righteousness, Jesus is going to contrast this true righteousness with the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Jesus is going to talk about the laws in his kingdom and the spiritual principles that are to govern those who wish entrance into that kingdom and wish to embrace that kingdom and to walk with that king. And so the question, of course, is what is true righteousness? And people will ask the question, well, really, what must I do? What must I do to go to heaven? How good do I have to be to really go to heaven? And the religious leaders taught that being good consisted in the things that you did. Obeying the rules, observing the regulations, obeying the Sabbath. Righteousness consisted of praying and fasting and giving. But Jesus is going to focus not just simply on the things that you do, but he is going to focus on who you are. What do you believe about yourself? What do you really believe about God? And what do you believe about others? Righteousness for the religious leaders... If it consisted of praying and fasting and giving, now Jesus is going to basically invite the person to look within them and not neglect the outside. The king's constitution, instead of a bill of rights, is really, in fact, a bill of blessings. And there are many, many, many mistakes that people make when they read this sermon. Some people reading this sermon completely misunderstand it and they take it out of its context. Some will apply it to nations when it was meant for individuals. And so when you hear someone as authoritative as even our president of the United States saying, well, which one of these things are, are we as a nation supposed to do? I'm willing to say, Mr. President, you can preach for me when I can be the president of the United States. Because the truth is, the truth is, I want you to think this through. This sermon doesn't apply to nations. It was meant for individuals. This sermon doesn't apply to the unsaved. It was meant for believers. In chapter 5, it says, when he came to the mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Remember, these are all people who already know about Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. These are all people who have already abandoned their sin and who have embraced Jesus. So it doesn't apply to nations. It applies to individuals. It doesn't apply to the unsaved. It applies to the saved. And some will make it a Christian law to be obeyed rather than a description 
of a Christian character that we cultivate as we live in proximity and relationship to the Lord Jesus, even though the cross isn't mentioned in chapter 5, 6, and 7, even though the power of the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in verses 5, 6, and 7, you won't be able to live this life unless it's by the The cross of Jesus, which has become real to you, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, which has become real to you. Some Bible teachers and scholars suggest that since Matthew is the kingdom gospel, and this is the king's constitution, it's for the kingdom age. And I don't dispute that. I think it's safe to say that if Israel had received her king, if these principles had been embraced then quite literally the kingdom would have been inaugurated but the principles were rejected and the king was rejected and his kingdom will be rejected in Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 the fullness of the principles being embraced I'm going to suggest to you await a future millennium and a future fulfillment. But that can't be the whole story. The fact is that the sermon can't be restricted to the future millennium. And the reason why I think that that's true is because in this sermon, there are thieves in chapter 6, verse 19. There are Pharisees in chapter 5, verse 17 and 20. There are false prophets in chapter 7, verse 15. And if my understanding of the millennium is correct, then thieves, Pharisees, and, and false prophets aren't going to be a part of that kingdom. So if Satan is bound in the millennium, Why in the world would we pray, deliver us from the evil one in chapter 6, verse 13? There's fasting in chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And why would you pray, thy kingdom come in chapter 6, verse 10, if the kingdom is already here? And so the Jewish people were expecting a king and a kingdom, but they want freedom from Rome. They're looking for a political release a cultural release maybe even a psychological release but Jesus is going to release them from so much more because it isn't just simply about how do we survive in the world in which we're living in and how do I survive as a person in the world in which I'm living in the sermon on the mount I'm going to suggest to you is going to upset the religious sensibilities and it's going to upset their expectations. And the fact is that most of this sermon's content is repeated elsewhere in the New Testament and to the church. And I'm willing to concede that the Sermon on the Mount is a charter for a future kingdom, but we dare not, we dare not, we dare not say that it has no meaning now or no application now. Because the truth is, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you describe yourself as a current follower of Jesus Christ, if you claim citizenship in Jesus' kingdom, then part of this passage is in fact an invitation to accept the king's constitution. Earlier this week, Jefferson County and Lakewood County, or Lakewood, the city of Lakewood, they had their graduation ceremony for their academy uh, graduation for the police officers who will be serving in our community. They came and they used our church and they filled almost every seat in this auditorium with family and friends, with officers. And when they came, they represented police officers who will serve in Douglas County, in Jefferson County, people who will serve in Arapahoe County, in the city of Lakewood, in the city of, of Westminster. And during the, the, the ceremony, there came a point upon their graduation when they had to swear an oath of allegiance. They had to raise their right hand and they had to swear 
to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And they had to swear to uphold the Constitution of the state of Colorado. And depending on the different jurisdictions that they would be serving in, there was a sheriff or there was a chief or there was a judge who made them hold their right hand up to swear not only allegiance to the Constitution of the United States and the state of Colorado, but to whatever particular jurisdiction that they would be representing and that they would be accountable for. And in this sermon, Jesus invites the Christian to consider what it's like to think like a Christian, to act like a Christian, about what you're going to think about God and what you're going to think about each other. The religious leaders had for the most part left people with the impression that righteousness was only something on the outside. It was external and outward. But Jesus understood that sin is mainly manifested on the outside, but it begins its life on the inside. Righteousness is not something that you do in front of others. It's something that you do in front of God. It's not something that you do simply when people are looking. It's something that you do when only God is looking. And so, look what it says in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain. And when he was... Seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them. In the ancient world, it was the custom of the rabbi to stand when preaching and to sit when teaching. We do things a little bit differently here. I stand and you sit. It's really a matter of convenience. But in colleges and universities in antiquity, the main teaching position in a college or a university was referred to as the chair. They would have a chair of science. They would have a chair of philosophy. They would have a chair of history or theology. The implication being when you sit in that chair, you are speaking important, authoritative significant things and in the world in which we're reading in this particular context the moment that Jesus sits and he opens his mouth to speak the expectation is that what he is going to say is not only going to be powerful it's not only going to be important and significant but it's going to be authoritative Will Durant the famous historian said that in every generation there are a few people who emerge within that generation and they make a lasting impression And the person who stands head and shoulders in every generation is the person of Jesus Christ. That's why atheists, agnostics, people who have a worldview completely disconnected from the Bible are willing to concede that there's something about this Jesus. There's something about this Jesus. If you view life just simply in terms of impact that's made on a people or on a civilization, everyone recedes and Jesus comes to the top of the list. We judge people based on what they say and do. And history remembers what they say and do and the permanent impression that it makes. And everything, everything, everything Jesus will say in the next three chapters is to make us aware of our sinful condition. It's to make us aware of our total inability to keep the standard and to force us into the arms of the Savior. 
Millions, millions, millions of people have believed that if they could just obey these words, if they could just keep the standard, if they could turn to chapter 5, and if they could read what Jesus says, and if they could adopt what Jesus says, if they could think the thoughts that are in this passage, and do the things that are in this passage, and treat one another according to the things that are in this passage, then they're going to be fine before God. But what they fail to consider is that these standards and expectations Expectations that Jesus gives is also head and shoulders above the commandments of Moses. You see, you could be condemned to death by breaking one of the rules of the commandments. According to the Ten Commandments, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And people in moments of honesty who are willing to concede that they're living their lives in truth before God know that they've broken the first commandment. And when you break the first commandment, the Bible says it's like a string of pearls that being faithless in one means that you've broken all of them. And the standards of Jesus are going to be way higher. In Moses' law, if you took a person's life unlawfully, you were guilty of murder and you should be put to death. If you committed adultery, you were guilty of killing a person's family and you could be put to death. But Jesus is going to say, it isn't just simply killing someone, but if you're angry with them for no good reason, It has the moral equivalence of committing murder inside of you. If you look at a man or a woman to lust after them, then you're guilty of adultery. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't mention the blood of Christ, but it becomes the basis for Calvary and the power of the Holy Spirit is the only way that human beings are even going to be able to approach submission and walk. And so right from the start, right from the start, these aren't simply commands to be obeyed, but reveal the character of a righteous person. And that righteous person invites us to walk with him, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart. And so the reality, it's a relationship and a walk with Jesus. Right from the start, we're going to run a horrible risk. And that's falling into the Pharisaic trap of thinking that we can keep the letter and all the while neglect the person speaking these words. And so look what Jesus says in article one of his constitution, humility, the right to be humble. Look in verse three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The king begins with a call to happiness and then proceeds to a call for humility. The section has been called for centuries, the Beatitudes because of the Latin Beatus or Beatus from the Greek word used here in our text, makarios. Beatus was a word that was later used to describe beautiful attitudes. We find in these blessings a description of our Lord's character, and it begins with the familiar phrase that will be repeated over and over again, blessed. But if you don't understand it at the beginning of our study, you won't understand it later. The word blessed in the ancient world was a word that was usually reserved for the gods. When human beings, when mere human beings would talk amongst themselves. Homer used the word to describe a wealthy man. Plato used it to describe a successful man. It was used in Greek culture to mean the state of being of the gods who were unaffected by trial, unaffected by tragedy, unaffected by circumstance. It's been translated, oh, how happy. And that's not a mistranslation, but it means way more than that. 
In our Constitution, we're guaranteed the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And as you know, many people pursue happiness, but they find it elusive. You've probably heard people say, I just want to be happy. You've probably heard parents tell their children, I just want to be happy. You've probably said it repeatedly. But in the constitution of the kingdom, happiness, happiness, happiness is a result of faith and obedience to the king. You see, we live in a culture and a society where happiness means the absence of conflict and the presence of financial security and the presence of all of the things that we think that we need. But real happiness, true happiness, according to Jesus, comes as a result of loving and obeying God. And when you love him, that means that there's an affection that wells up inside of you and when you follow him that means you respect him so loving Jesus implies relationship and respect and so when the Bible says happy are the people whose God is the Lord in Psalm 33 12 David says happy is the man whose sins are forgiven in Psalm 32 verse 1 When Jesus is using the term, he's not just simply using the term of the presence of some sort of emotional state of being that's inside of your heart. He's talking about the settled confidence that comes when you know that you've been approved by God. We might even read this. Those who are approved by God are poor in spirit. I want you to think about this because it's the line of demarcation for the rest of the sermon. Again, we live in a culture and a society where approval means almost everything. You can't hardly watch the news without seeing someone saying, well, the president's approval rating is plummeting and the Congress's approval rate is plummeting and and people are, are upset about the economic circumstances and they're upset about this and they're upset about that. Hollywood and culture and academics are constantly looking for the approval from each other. And you might have grown up in a world where the approval of your father meant everything. The approval of your mother meant everything. The approval of each other meant everything. But the approval that that Jesus is talking about is an approval by God. And the reason why this is going to be so very important, because it is going to be the line of demarcation that you're going to have to come to over and over again as we look at this particular passage and we ask the question, am I looking to be approved by the people who are around me or am I looking to be approved by God? And the king's constitution doesn't begin with an individual bill of of rights, but a declaration of dependence upon the Lord. The world says the first step in your happiness is to watch out for yourself, be assertive, be confident, feel good about yourself. But in Christ's government, you're going to be commanded to be humble and compassionate and meek and merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker. And because you are seeking the approval of God, you can expect to be persecuted by the very people for the very righteousness that Jesus asks you to embrace. And that humility and compassion and meekness and mercifulness and righteousness and purity of heart becomes the very marks in the world in which you live in for loser. And so Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. And by the way, the expression poor means destitute. It means destitute of provision. In the South, they, they sometimes, when they re- refer to people who are particularly poor, they refer to them as dirt poor. They might be dirt poor in the sense that they might have a little piece of land. I know that, that people tell their own stories about growing up, about living in poverty, You know, I talk about, um, I'm the oldest of five children, and I used to stay out late at night just so I could sleep. We all slept in one bed, and I would stay out late at night just so I could sleep on the top. 
and how poor we were. And you're supposed to say, how poor were you? We would eat ketchup sandwiches. I know some of you are thinking, I like ketchup sandwiches without the bread. Okay. Okay. It bombed. The Greek word is takos. It's P-T-O-C-H-O-S. Takos. It was used to describe a beggar. And the beggar would shrink or cower or cringe. In classic Greek, it was the beggar with an outstretched empty hand. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For I say, through the grace that's been given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The picture is a person who has nothing, who has nothing to offer God. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their need, who recognize their absolute dependence for God in all things. We know that Jesus is the source of life and we know that Jesus is the object of life and we know that Jesus is the meaning of life. But some of us live our lives as if the recognition of the absolute dependence upon God isn't really true. Jesus himself said, I'm meek and lowly in heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine. And so the poor, the poor in spirit are those who get their perception and their outlook about themselves from God. They are poor inwardly, having no ability themselves to please God. The idea is that when you see a holy, righteous God in all of his glory and majesty, then you get a real picture of how unrighteous you are. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah levels warning after warning after warning to Israel throughout the first five chapters of the book. Isaiah says, wash yourselves. He says, woe unto you, Israel. You've forsaken your God. Your religious rituals mean nothing to me. Wash and make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doings before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And after several chapters of warning... Isaiah receives a vision of God high and lifted up. And as you know, in that vision, angels are there and they're surrounding and they fly around the throne of the king and they say, holy, holy, holy. And when the angels are saying, holy, 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 the word means a radical separation from everything else. When the angels say holy, it means that God is radically different from his creation. He's radically different in his purity, majesty, and glory. He is utterly and ultimately separated from it. And when Isaiah receives this vision of God, he says, uh, he says, woe is me, woe is me, for, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people with unclean hearts. He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord himself. Later on when Peter We'll see Jesus in, in his majesty. He will watch as Jesus calms the storm. And when Peter realizes who Jesus really is, he says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. When John sees a vision of Jesus in heaven, the Bible says that he fell down as if he were dead. Humility begins when you see God and then you see yourself the way God sees you, spiritually destitute, utterly dependent. 
You realize you have nothing. You have nothing. You have nothing to save yourself. Pride is gone. Self-assurance is gone. You stand with nothing to offer God except an empty heart and an empty hand. The only thing that you have to give him is your sin. And he'll take it. And he'll forgive it. It doesn't mean cowardly. It doesn't mean weak. The meaning is the exact opposite of positive self-regard or positive self-esteem. The world wants to praise itself and assert itself. This last week when I was reading some classic literature about a medical doctor who was schooled and was a part of a plague and he found himself destitute without family and clothes and he finds himself on a trash heap and he is taken by a group of the medical staff in, in Paris and at that particular time they didn't really speak French to one another. They would, they would speak Latin and one of the Latin doctors said, let's take this miserable piece of garbage and experiment him on him for the common good. And in perfect Latin, he said, why would you call me garbage? And why would you say that I am worthless when there's a God in heaven and he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to the earth to die for me? You mean there's no place for self-esteem? If esteem means correct assessment of self, then yeah, there's a place for self-esteem. If esteem means unconditional commitment to the self, apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from grace, then there is no place for self-esteem. Humility isn't false humility. The Bible doesn't say or teach that human beings have no value. God made us. We are created in the image of God. How can any soul be worthless if Jesus loves them and died for them? God hates pride and arrogance. And and then Isaiah will later write in chapter 66, verse 2, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Jesus loves the brokenhearted. He loves those who are crushed in spirit. And when Jesus spoke of the parable between the Pharisee and and, uh, the tax gatherer, it says certain ones who trusted in themselves, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And the Pharisee stood praying And he said, thank you, God, that I'm not like this miserable, worthless piece of person who's right next to me. I give out of everything that I have. I go to church every Sunday. I only watch the Christian channel. And the man next to him says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said one went away justified and the other one unjustified. Jesus puts this article first, I think for good reason. Because humility precedes all the other characteristics and attitudes. One famous church father, John Chrysostom, said, Humility is the mother, the root, the nurse, the foundation, the center of all other virtues. This is the one that comes first. And so the invitation into the kingdom becomes the way up is the way down. And in order to go as high as you can possibly go, you have to go as low as you can possibly go. Marian Anderson was a black American singer who deserved and won worldwide acclaim as a concert soloist. She didn't simply grow great, she grew great simply. And in spite of her fame, she remained gracious and approachable. She was a woman who never put on airs and she was the model of humility. And a reporter, while interviewing Miss Anderson, asked her to name the greatest moment in her life. 
And the choice seemed difficult to everyone else in the room that day because there were so many big moments in her life. The night conductor Arturo Toscanini announced a voice like hers comes only once in a century. In 1955, she became the first black to sing with the Metropolitan Opera Company of New York. In the following year, her autobiography, My Lord, What a Morning, was published, and it became an instant bestseller. In 1958, she was a United States delegate to the United Nations. And on several, several occasions throughout her illustrious career, she sang in places all over the world, received all kinds of accolades. She gave a private concert at the White House to the Roosevelts. She gave a concert to the King and Queen of England. In her hometown, on one occasion, she was awarded the Bach Award, which goes to the person in that city who's done the most for the city. In 1960, she sang at Kennedy's presidential inaugural. In 1963, she was awarded the coveted Presidential Medal of Freedom. And then there was Easter Sunday in Washington, D.C., where she, she stood underneath the Lincoln Memorial and she sang for a crowd of some 75,000 people, including all of the justices on the Supreme Court, most of the members of Congress. And so which of those moments would she choose? None of them. None of them. She quietly said, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest day of her life was when she went home and she told her mother that she wouldn't have to take in washing other people's laundry ever again. There's a journey in our culture and society where we think that the way up is the way of approval. But Jesus says it's the way down. You see, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's not just talking about an attitude that's inside of your heart, but the reward that takes place because of that attitude inside of your heart. And that's why he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the expression of kingdom of heaven appears only in Matthew's gospel. It's generated volumes of debate. How does the kingdom of God differ from the kingdom of heaven? Some short answers have included, well, Matthew's gospel is presented to the Jewish people who out of respect are reluctant to name the name of God or pronounce the name of God. And so they simply say Hashem, the name. And so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven. And He's almost certainly speaking in Aramaic. And he speaks of this place where God is in control, where he is the sovereign king, where he is the rightful ruler. And in the ancient world, they had a, a much more dramatic understanding of what it meant to live in a kingdom and have a king. In our culture and society, the thing that we think first about is a person who has absolute control over us, and we don't like that. You don't like it even now. It's hard for you to come to grips with the fact that you have control over yourself, and you go, well, I don't want to have control over myself, and then you prove it to be true. Here's part of the point that is being made. It isn't just simply over the reality that when you are a member of a kingdom and you are subjects in that kingdom, it isn't just simply the absolute power that the king has over, for, over you. Because remember, in that culture and, and society, there was also expectations that citizens could have of their king. Could citizens ex expect protection from enemies in territories controlled by the king? The answer is yes. Could they expect a provision to the subjects? The answer is yes. 
Could they expect order, a sense of peace, the lawful resolution of of conflict? The answer is yes. And in most ancient cultures and societies, the part of the point of the king was it was the king or the queen's responsibility to represent the nature of God and the character of God to the people in that kingdom. And sadly, most didn't because they were mean and selfish and self-centered. But Jesus isn't like that at all. Jesus is the king in the kingdom. And we can expect protection from our enemies and provision for, for us and, and security in our life. And we can expect that when Jesus speaks and when Jesus acts... He's acting on behalf of God the Father. No wonder now we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he answers Thomas. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The kingdom of heaven is the place where God rules. And there's a mystery associated with this kingdom. The kingdom is at least in one sense a present experience in Luke 11 and in Luke 17. When Jesus taught or spoke or performed a miracle. You see the moment that Jesus shows up and the moment that Jesus speaks. And the moment that Jesus opens blind eyes or deaf ears. The moment he cleanses the leper. The moment that he raises the dead. The kingdom is present. And so there's a sense in which the kingdom is present. And then there's a sense in which the kingdom is far away. But the point, of course, will be the moment that Jesus shows up, the kingdom is present. Remember, for the Christian, the way up is the way down. No wonder in Matthew 23, 12, Jesus will say, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the poor in spirit are those who know, who know, who know. Only God can save them. Only God can protect them. Only God can provide for them. And the proud in spirit are those who hold out hope. That they can save themselves, that they can provide for themselves, that they can protect themselves. And the applause that they're looking for is coming from someone right here. And so, are you trying to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven on your own? If pride turned angels into demons, then humility no doubt can turn demons into angels. No wonder Jonathan Edwards said, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. William Barclay sums it up this way, Christian humility is based on the sight of self, the vision of Christ, and the realization of God, unquote. No wonder, no wonder, no wonder. They that really know God must embrace humility. They can't be proud. If you were to walk into the entryway of heaven, you would see a great big sign. Pride, conceit, not allowed entry. Samuel Rutherford wrote, quote, humility is a strange flower. It grows best in winter weather and under storms of affliction. If you're wondering how you get humility, it usually comes from brokenness. It usually comes from dependence. It usually comes when you find yourself in a circumstance where you don't have. Samuel Rutherford also said, our pride must have winter weather to rot it. Pride shrivels. When you pour humility over it. My children would play a terrible prank when they were kids growing up. In our backyard there would sometimes be slugs and snails. And ever 
the curious scientists. My oldest son, Miguel, showed his two younger brothers what happened when you poured salt on a slug. It like bursts. It shrivels and dies. The presence of salt means death. Just like the presence of humility means death to pride. You know, humility is a strange thing. The minute you think you've got it, you've lost it. There was a church that gathered and they gave out an award to the most humble person in the church. And she wore it every single day. Then they took it back. (laughs) Hudson Taylor, who was the founder of the China Inland Mission, was introduced with much flattery. And when Taylor came to the pulpit, he quietly said, Dear friends, I'm a little servant of an illustrious master. The late A.W. Tozier was once presented to a congregation, and they talked about all of his accolades, his wondrous works, and his incredible volumes. And when Tozier took the pulpit, he, he could say, All I can say is, Dear God, forgive him for what he said. And dear God, forgive me for liking it so much. (laughs) The poor in spirit experience the approval of God. That's what they're looking for. And the poor in spirit become candidates for spiritual growth. And without humility and poverty of spirit, entrance into the kingdom isn't allowed. So how low do you have to go? You have to go far enough so that the only thing that you can see in your sight is the Lord Jesus, his love. His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. And then, all you want to hear is his approval. And that's just the first sentence of the greatest speech that has ever been given. But next week, I'll do something Christmassy. So bring your twice-a-year family and friends who won't darken the door except for next Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Jesus and for his love. And Lord, we, we pray that you would give us the ability to see ourselves in light of your purity your honesty, your holiness, your greatness, your majesty. And Lord, that we wouldn't be overwhelmed with how bad we are, but rather, Lord, we would be overwhelmed by how good you are and how gracious you are and how generous and merciful you are. Like the invitation that Jesus extended, that we are simply beggars, with our hands outstretched and with our hands open, ready to receive mercy and grace. Because apart from your mercy and grace, we understand that the kingdom isn't going to be available to us. And so, Lord, with mercy and grace, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that we can be citizens of heaven And that we can enjoy our citizenship. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.